Joshua 1, verses 7 to 9. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not, sorry, do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep the book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. When Todd asked me about six weeks ago if I would be willing to preach as a part of the sermon series in February, no less, called How to Be an Anti-Racist, I made a face. He would know this, of course, because it was over text message, so I was able to express awkwardly how I felt inwardly. And the face was a little bit like, okay. And so we're here. <laughs> I'd already been wrestling with the topic for obvious reasons. I'm a black woman. I have black children. I have a black husband. I know black people. I have a black father, black mother. You get it. And yet, I still had no answers. And the urgency to have an answer or have something to talk about today was pressing on me for six weeks. So pray for me. Actually, let's pray together. Father, your word says that your strength is perfect in weakness. We ask today that you show just how weak I am. Amen. So I had some questions. You want me to talk about how to be an anti-racist during Black History Month? Is it Midtown? We are the world vibes that we're going for. Is it uptown by any means necessary? I needed to know. It was important to know. Was it, you know, casual black history month? Was it blackity black? I mean, there are a lot of levels to this. Fortunately, Todd had a call um, among myself. And I just want I'm sharing some of this because one, I don't always come to the same church every Sabbath, so I like enter into the middle of a series and there's some assumed knowledge from this other side that I totally missed. Needless to say, Todd had a call with myself, um, the other speakers who will be speaking over the course of the month, and then also, for those of you who may or may not know, there's a, a book study about the book, because I live in New Jersey, with the Cheesecake Factory, <laughs> and with Lana, Andrew, uh, Andrew I'm going to keep working on that. Um, and I didn't know there was a book. I did, the, the rock I was under didn't tell me there was a book. So they're studying about that specifically through what the book talks about. So he talked about it, and he had a plan. He's like, I'm going to talk about the foundation, about understanding um, that this is, this, is the, this, this is critical to the work of the gospel. I'm paraphrasing. Um, the woman who spoke last week shared, and was super clear at the time, and I was really impressed by that. She shared that she was going to talk about specifically um, how at times she has been the person who walked past the, per the, she's like the Levi or the priest who walked past the person on the side of the road, not the Good Samaritan. And while she was right, because her other point was like, we can't be um, 
we cannot be indifferent about this topic. It's either that you are exclusively anti-racist or you're problematic, AKA racist. That's it, that's what the book entails and that was her conviction and I agreed with her, she was right. But then I was frustrated. I was frustrated because how could we still be here at this point in the Christian story of going through, and while it's important to do, the, the feelings of the people who pass by the person and not the actual person that's on the side of the road, the urgency and the necessity to fix the problems. And in thinking through that, I shared that. I shared that out loud, and I kind of was nervous about doing that because I didn't know the other speakers. Everyone on the call at the time was another white person. I didn't know them. There was a guy named Jake on the call. If you're here, I don't know you. Hi, Jake. I'm, I'm glad to have a visual because I kept imagining Jake from State Farm, like the whole call. <laughs> but, but in any event, I, because of a lot of the good um, experiences I've had here with Todd, with many of you, I felt comfortable, even though I didn't know these people, I understand the context in which we were speaking, that I could say this to them. And they were very receptive. They were like, you're right, this is ridiculous. We should be moving on past this. But I still didn't have a Bible text. I still didn't have something that I could say to you that was accurate, that, was, that felt grounded in something other than my feelings. So I kept working at it. Now, before I go any further, I, I gotta make a couple disclosures. When I'm in moments where I feel inadequate for the task at hand, lots of different things, I'm always comforted by the saying of Miss Maya Angelou who said, I stand as one, but I come as 10,000. And that's this idea that no matter what your struggles are, especially as a person of color, you are connected to something bigger. Your ancestors, your community has led you to this place and you don't stand alone. However, I wanna be very clear about the fact that while that is true, and I am deeply grateful for that, the things I share today are exclusively my opinions and beliefs and experiences. I share that specifically because I recognize how tokenism can be a complex issue in spaces where only few people get the opportunity to stand here to say the things about the subject and not everyone gets that, and this is not representative of anybody else, so I hope as you're having these conversations and you're meeting with different people that their, their words, their thoughts are equal whether or not they have a podium in front of them. The second thing that I wanna say is, I'm not going to read the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Todd said I didn't have to, which was good, <laughs> because the sermons were not necessarily to be a reflection or reaction to the book. And the reason why I'm not going to read said book, even though I know it's amazing, I know a lot of people, black, white, every, and everything in between and beyond, celebrate this author as an expert. The reality is I just don't have the energy to rehearse what it is I know is the problem, as well as deal with racism in a real time. I have to pick my battles, this is not one of them. That said, my thoughts, again, are not a reflection of the book. And I'm sure there's valid points, none of which will be addressed here. I feel that's important. However, and I'm sorry, I'm losing my points. No, I'm not. 
Um, I love that others are reading the book. I'm encouraged by that. I think it's important if you can, or if you don't know, and I'll talk about why we don't know, that this is a part of the Christian struggle that we have to be addressing. I also struggle believing in the power of a book. And the reason why I have to say that, in terms of this particular book being trans transformational, is that we are already a group of people who claim a God who has made promises to us and who's given us specific instructions on how to love one another, inspired, demonstrated in different stories, in red print in certain versions of the Bible. We take that name of Christ and we have, in many cases for all of us, not all of us, but have not demonstrated what it is we've seen in a book of a God we claim to know, love, and worship. So the idea that another book from somebody we don't know is going to change our lives, it gives me pause. I'm just being honest. And I feel like honesty is important because while often we talk about as Christians not lying, withholding truth is equally damaging. And I think this topic is urgent enough that we're honest about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, Here's the thing I also want to say. I'm mindful. We're Advent Hope. You know, we're pretty hip. We're diverse. We're comfortable. You know, we're not those people. We're not those problematic people. And yet, we're not immune. And I feel like it's important to talk about that in this context. We also have, because of our makeup, by opting into this particular environment, highly educated, worldly people who've seen different things and are able to escape from the trope of, you know, uneducated people who live in a bubble and never met anyone different from themselves. And yet the reality is that racism still persists even when we can be together. And I feel like that's, I have to make those acknowledgements. So while we may not fit the caricature of what a racist is, we still have to be mindful that it is not until we live the full extent of what God has called us to do as Christian brothers and sisters that we have adequately served our case. It's not enough to say, we're not like those guys. We're better than them. We can sit next to each other and have lunch. Not enough. So even though I have all these feelings and I can't believe we're even talking about it in some ways because it's 2020, right? Like we've had a black president. So many, we've had Black Panther. We've had so many things. And we've clearly moved on, right? <laughs> and I thought so too, until a couple years ago. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, Todd mentioned this, and so I kind of have to out myself. I'm really outing myself because you never know it was me because I pretty consistently show up at the end of service with my three kids and come to the front row because there's no other seats for five people in the back. That said, um, a couple years ago, I have three kids. My middle's one and a half. We were in Sabbath school. And I just want to shout out the Sabbath school teachers because, again, I don't come regularly or on time, so you do all the work, and I appreciate that. Um, they passed out these really cute little felt holy Bibles. And I thought, that's so cute because they can't read. What kind of cute stories are in here? I opened it. I flipped through the pages. First page, page was Jesus. Blonde, blue-eyed, fine. I'm old, like, I, I, we've, I've moved on from this. But all the subsequent pages were individual portraits of what looked like a white family. A white dad, 
dad, a white mom, a white older sister, a middle brother, and a little brother who kind of reminded me of Jeff Sessions. It was really weird. And I kept flipping through it, like, is this really, like, like I, I try to think of what world this would be the Holy Bible. I mean, mind you, it's got the gold writing on the front. It's, it looks legit. And, in the, and I even checked the paint. I was like, is this the KKK version? Like, what is going on? I was completely out of my mind. This is, this is 2018. This is Avon Hope. This is us. And like, listen, clearly you, you hear how I am. You see how I am. I've clearly had conversations with Todd behind the scenes. It took me like two weeks to even bring this up to him because I was just like, I didn't even know what I was reacting to. But it was here. And I've been thinking about how easy it is to get back to this, this issue of anti-racism. For if, from the time before you can read, before you can really formulate ideas of theology, of understanding of who God is and how big he is, for you to have these images deeply ingrained as the gospel inside the black felty gold lettering book that is to your salvation from birth, that's crazy. Now, what's crazier is what happened to me my senior year of college. I went to Andrews. I love Andrews. My dad worked there a long time. That said, they subsidized most of my education. We're, we're good. Andrews and I are good. But my senior year, I ended up taking um, world civilization and ideas. It's a basic history class. And I took it from someone I knew that I respected. I'd known my whole life. And he was a brilliant teacher. He could talk off the dome about anything. He went from ancient everybody, Europe, um, um, Greece, Rome, Egypt, not going in order clearly, uh, China, so on and so forth, India, everything. He ma had mastered all this content. And class was, you know, I'm like senior year, I'm ready to go. But this was a really intriguing and amazing class. So we get to probably about 75% of the way through, our um, through the semester. And the teacher, Again, a brilliant mind. Shows up and he says, well, oh, sorry, we get through 75%. The assignment is to learn about sub-Saharan Africa. And I have this epiphany. I've never learned about Africa ever in school. Other than to say, it's where they took the slaves from that they brought here into other places. Then that happened for two minutes. And now here we are, um, MLK, we are the world. Like that, you know, that's it. I, I, and I was like amazed. I was like, I can't believe I've never learned about the continent. And you may not know this, maybe by the head wrap, I'm from the continent. My parents were born on the continent. So I've had other learnings, but nothing ever formal. I share that to say, I was so excited. I was like, he's going to tell us everything. We're going to learn about the context from here to there and how all this stuff makes sense. And when we get to class, he goes, you know, I don't know a lot about Africa. So this student is going to tell us about Zimbabwe, where he's from. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, well, oh, sorry. I was like, can, can we at least talk about what the book talked about? I was like, because the book had some fascinating things to say. The book said, and I'll never forget this, this is more than 10 years ago, because I'm not young anymore. It said, we don't know a lot about sub-Saharan Africa because of racism, Eurocentrism, and tropical climates that have made it hard to preserve artifacts. 
that was it. I mean, I feel like that's pretty, that's a powerful st statement. And I, I was happy that they said that so that they didn't make it seem like this is a, a comprehensive idea of Africa. They're like, we don't know a lot, and here's why. So I had read that out, and I look up just in time for my teacher to be like, racism is not a thing. We're just the human race. Racism is a, is a, is a human construct. It doesn't exist. Now, I'm, the, the, I'm confused, but now there's like 60 heads in the classroom that are now paying attention, like, what did he say? And we spent, we didn't learn about Sub-Saharan Africa. Subsequently, we didn't learn about um, Zimbabwe even, because we spent the whole hour arguing about whether or not racism existed. And his premise was, God created us as one. These things are man-made. Um, our focus on them is not a good thing to do. Like, it's, it's, it's the wrong thing to do. It doesn't, it doesn't exist, and we're over-obsessed we're over with it. And I was kind of like, huh. And somebody, because I was already spellbound at this point, which you can tell is hard, said, well, we learned about aqueducts, and they're man-made, but you felt like that was worth studying. Like, why can't we at least discuss this man-made thing? And he was very much against it. So we didn't. I share these two pillars, or not even end caps, of the fact that I used to not be able to believe that anybody could deny racism existed. Like, not able to believe that that, that could be a sincere belief or thought. And then I had an epiphany in why I think we are struggling. Because as educated as we are, as smart as we are, as much as this man who would go on to say, well, I studied the Holocaust, therefore, that's why I don't know about Africa. To which, of course, we had to remind him, well, what does that have to do with Greece, and Rome, and China, and India? To re recognize that we are not able to, that you can be highly educated and not know anything about this topic. And too often, people are using their influence over people to dissuade them from even getting the information that they could have. So I now feel, quite frankly, and this is, of course, me speaking for me, compassion for the people that I really can see if you don't know a black person. You wouldn't know. However, I don't see that as a full excuse, and I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to tell you why that has to do with Joshua. I went through different iterations of the right way to approach this from a biblical perspective. One of the other speakers made an excellent point. She's like, you know, there's a lot of expressed feelings, I'm paraphrasing, in Psalms. Psalms that, that touch on a lot of feelings, you can, you can pull from there. And I'm like, but this isn't about feelings. Like, it is coming to life in feelings. It feels like feelings, but this is actual urgency and passion and a need for focused effort that I feel inside coming across as, as um, feelings. So that wasn't enough for me. And as I, but, but it did give me license to realize that there were characters in the Bible that were expressing emotions, even if it wasn't as poetic as the Psalms were. And that led me to Joshua and the belief that I have that he gives us a great blueprint for how to have a faith-based, anti-racist um, perspective, lifestyle, and plan of action. So here's why I say that. And I'm, gonna, I'm paraphrasing from a lot of pieces of Joshua's life. 
that I believe, I will, I'll, I'll touch on, but I, I, I'm assuming, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, that you know some of these kind of key parts of his story. A, Joshua's optimistic. Joshua, when he was one of the two spies that said, that went into the promised land that Moses had said, he said, he came back, not, well, Caleb was the more vocal one to say, yes, there are giants, but we can defeat them. And the other 10 said, mm, I don't think so. I think the giants are bigger than we can, we can manage. And those 10 destroyed everyone else's confidence. But Joshua, even in that time, showed that he knew who God was. He saw the God that managed the plagues on Egypt. He saw the God that carried them through the Red Sea and had, and had done many miracles. He knew that that same God could handle the, the giants that they saw in Canaan, in part because it was also true everything that God had told them about this land. It wasn't that, they, that he saw what was over there and it wasn't good. It was just that he knew it was good and the giants were big, but God was bigger. He was clear on that. Optimism, I think, is critical because cynicism is killing our will to do the work when it comes to racism, when it comes to sexism. It's across the board, this idea that it is unsurmountable. It keeps us from even trying. But Joshua was optimistic. And this was something that maybe thinking about it in this context gave me a lot of compassion for Joshua. Joshua, and I'm not a psychologist, Joshua was likely traumatized. When I was a kid and I would hear the story about how Joshua and Caleb were going to get to go to the promised land, but everybody else was going to die in the wilderness, I, was like, I imagined them high-fiving each other, being like, ha, ha, ha. I was a child. As an adult, I can see how that's a horrible reality. The fact that everyone that you left Egypt with, people that you had crossed the Red Sea with, you would not only know they were going to die because you knew God was, an, was a God of his word, but you would watch them die in the wilderness. You would watch them, loved ones, like people you cared about. This was the, his community. And he had to watch them die on top of dealing with the, the realities of what he'd come from, from slavery. He was likely traumatized. And I say that because he was able to do the work despite what it was that's probably very grueling details that happened. And I'm not saying that like, oh, we all need to, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying this was clearly a man that wasn't just running off of courage and energy. The fact that God tells him like 17 times in Joshua 1, be strong and courageous, that to me indicates that he was weak. He wasn't strong. He needed that focus and energy to get over to the, prom to the promised land. And we can take that as well. I think Joshua was mad. As I reread it and I thought about, it felt like his growing irritation for the children of Israel. Like, you guys, I saw those giants. I know our God. They wouldn't listen to him. And because of it, they would die. But it was, it was all avoidable grief. He was mad. He was mad, and yet, despite his anger, he was still able to be faithful to God. I think that's an important thing for us to consider, too. Joshua was a warrior. Now, I'm not for violence, but sometimes it's necessary. 
and Joshua fought the battles that had to be fought. Not everybody may have to fight the battles. Um, I, I recently, <laughs> oh, I won't make that joke. Uh, <laughs> but it is, it is important that if you are, when God sends you to do things, even if they're uncomfortable things, that you're willing to do what it is that God asked to do, even if it means to actually do the thing, to, do, to have warfare. And he didn't do it because he was an angry person or wanting to hurt people or, or take things from people. He did it because God told him to do it. Like, I mean, it sounds crazy, but God told him to do it, and he did it. Two parts. This is a two-part thing. Joshua had receipts. Black History Month at times, and I've heard this maybe more so passive-aggressively than very directly, bemoaned as this month-long Albeit, all, albeit the shortest month of the year, bemoaning party of people of color talking about all the things that happened to them and why all the bad, you know, all the bad villains in the story and how that's so hard for everybody else to listen to. I have very little sympathy for that, as you can tell. But Joshua shows us, as you look every time, he constantly, he doesn't say what he hopes for what, is, what, what the reward will be. He constantly draws people back to the uh, battles and miracles that God has already done. Joshua is the CVS of receipts. Okay, you know those CVS receipts? You know, you will buy one thing and it's like a scarf. I mean, it, it kept him warm. It was the pillar by night, sorry, the pillar by day, the fire by night, and the, and the receipts of, the, of, of meditating on God's word, like a CVS garment that he just, he kept, he held onto that. And it's important for us to do that, and if that, if, if one person's receipt of what God has done for them rubs you the wrong way, sorry. Like, this is, this is the testament that gives people courage to continue to fight these battles that they have to fight on their own. And the last part about why I think Joshua is a prime candidate for the blueprint of how to be an anti-racist from a faith-based perspective um, is because Joshua finally comes to the conclusion in Joshua 24, 15, that if you don't want to do this thing with the Lord, me and mine will, period, full stop, the end. And I was so relieved by that because in so many ways, I want us to get to places together. I would love for it to be 100% of us, saved, happy, moisturized, uh, exercising with G on Instagram. I want to see everybody happy and well, right? I just, I want that. But I also have to accept the fact that not everybody wants the thing. They don't want the full inheritance of what God would have for us. They don't want, or they maybe don't know how, but I, and my family and the people who are of like mind are not held back to progressing towards that higher calling, towards God himself, because we won't do this thing, all of us, 100% of us, together. He, and I feel like he probably came to that conclusion because he was ready, back in Numbers 13, to go to the promised land and forget about them. <laughs> and, and he had to go on this... I listen, when I tell my husband, turn here, and he doesn't, and we have to go two more blocks because of left and right turns, that drives me nuts. Can you imagine 40 years because people wouldn't listen to you? 40. I am 35. 
I can't, I'm, like, like it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. So in order, I want to paint a full picture and finish this for, you, for, for us to see how this all comes together. One, I acknowledge that we don't all have the same amount of information um, and experiences on how racism exists and manifests itself every given day. And the same, I'm a pretty tall person. I never think about what short people go through. But I've heard about it, and I'm like, oh, I, I, I mean, and it sounds like a silly thing, but I have realized, like, sometimes when I can read something, like, there's people who are really struggling with this. Granted, they can get step stools, it's not the end of the world, but still, I, I, it's something that it's not my problem that I have since learned and I can appreciate. The, the thing that we have to do, however, is recognize that, and I, I'm, I'm saying this now to the people who are passionate about seeing change happen. We get stuck, if that's online debates, if it's, if it's offline, negotiating whether or not it was, it is as we see it today, that racism exists, whether or not my professor agrees with that, that it has devastating effects to people, and that it's not enough for us to talk about on the side of the road, in our healthy postures and with our nice clothes, why it is that we have not stopped yet and just picked this man off the road. Like, we, we have to transition out of the debating about, is it a real thing? Um, can I listen to another person? Invalidating the experiences of people who have a different perspective. I think there's a way for us to do that, and at least myself, want to hear about the hurdles that other people have in order to address or to have an understanding about these things, but putting it into the context of there's 300 million people in the, in the United States. Only 45 million of them are black, one of which is Ben Carson, so that's like, you know, <laughs> he's not going to help. <laughs> and now we have the realities that if a minority of people constantly have to pivot and attend to the majority on a particular topic, then that's even less energy and time that can be focused on the solution. So when you see people who have a different urgency, a different excitement, a different passion for this, don't compare it to yours. Accept that you might be in racism two, zero two one, and we're in terminal degree level of understanding and ability to, to apply that knowledge to real life situations. And I don't fall, you know, I can see why you're there, but the good news is we now have Google. And now everyone can find out information about things without necessarily needing it to be through a person of color or through a woman. I, I say this because, listen, I'm also a woman, and I'm of the opinion, some people say, oh, well, you know, if, if more people knew each other and loved each other, everybody knows a woman. And yet, sexism is still a thing. Like, it's not about access or the numbers or, like, the possibility of a good experience from someone who represents the group that is oppressed by a, a system. So, I don't buy that. But the, the thought I have, and just kind of rethinking this community um, perspective, and oftentimes I think of 
the children of Israel as a monolithic group. But if you would just put on your creative, creative thinking African reps and consider that the multitude, the different tribes are like us, a global community with different perspectives that ultimately our rumblings, the majority in this group, not like all one people, all whatever, are afraid and they don't want to move forward. Um, and they ultimately, but it's, it's the majority in this case and their rumblings and their, their fears of moving forward is not the, it's not the major, minority complaining, it is the fear of a majority. And I don't mean this as a majority in terms of a racial sense necessarily, but it's the majority of people. 10 out of the 12 didn't have the faith that Joshua had. And those 10 were deceived and put the wrong seeds into the community. Now the, the, the challenge is, and while we sometimes say like, it's okay, you didn't know. The truth is, it wasn't just the 10 spies that died as a result of their disbelief because they fell for the poor leadership because they didn't have the faith. Everybody died because of it. And so when you hear a voice, and this is like a global thing, this is not, you know, everything, because in America, we're obsessed with the idea of majority rule. It is a principle, it is a belief, it has to be of power because we make it of such large consequence about how we live and how we lead. But if you think about that, then there's even more urgency to keep certain people out of the position of the spies, out of the position of the people who are making an account. Because when they lead people astray, and no one, listen, there's, the people who are led astray are, are they're, it's understandable why they believe the account of the person they knew, because this is a person from their tribe. This was someone that they knew. This wasn't just a random person on the street. This was, the, this was, this was the leader. This is who Moses sent, who chose to go and bring back a report. And so I say that today, if you're a Joshua, or if you hear something that could be like a Joshua or a Caleb that says, you know, these giants of racism, these giants of sexism, these giants of xenophobia, they can be solved, not because we are great, not because we have great music, but because God who has done so much to this point for us collectively, for us personally, can do this thing. It wasn't thus saith Joshua. It was thus is able to do by the Lord. And I have an urgency to say today, we can't keep doing this. You know, there's, there are communities in December, there was this huge, and maybe it wasn't on your timeline, you know, I know cat videos dominate a lot of timelines, but in December, like half of my timeline had gone to Ghana because it was the year of the return. And I didn't even know what that was, but it was 400 years since the first slaves had left West Africa. And I was like, 400 years? Like, that's crazy. But, and we take our Christian principles and we say, well, you know, we have to be forgiving. We're literally asking certain groups of people, and I say this not, I say this as someone who's a um, descendant of, of African immigrants to America, who was born in the United States, who doesn't have a, a certain historical map to the United States. We're asking black people of, of, of slave descent to not, have, not forgive 40 times, 70 times 70, but to forgive 70 times 70 years 
Nobody has time for that. Literally, nobody has time for that. That has to stop. And the reason why, and I'm going to finish on this point, it has to stop because while some people have put racism as one of these last things we have to do before Jesus comes, it's like the last thing. I personally see it as like the Red Sea in terms of the journey to the promised land. Racism is maybe the easiest. It's, it, is, it, is a, it is the easiest to, to, to pick up on individually. We can't get to the other complex layers of what divides us, like culture, like ethnicity, like tribes, like um, um, all these other layers, all these other battles that we need to, to do and that communities like ours that are diverse, that you know, I, I would love, I mean, speaking for myself again, I'd love for there not to need to be a black history because we're talking about indigenous people for a whole month, a whole month. <laughs> and we're focused on that. Like, that's where we could be if we could do this thing. And I tell you, I, I believe this not, not only because I know who God is and because I've seen even how in my um, parents' country atrocities like the Rwandan genocide have, people have been able to overcome those things. I've seen that. I've seen how forgiveness works actually to change hearts. But I say that because when I come to this church, we sing a song that gives me hope, that makes me feel strong, and that we can do this, which, in, in the, and you'll recognize this is, and I never heard it before I came to this church, but I know it's not original to hear. Diverse in culture, nation, race, we come together by your grace. God, let us be a meeting ground where hope and healing and love are found. We do that in song. And I want us, and I want to be part of us, so I don't have to leave you all behind, <laughs> to do that together in thought and action and in practice together beyond the songs. And I know we can do it. I don't know I can do it because of you guys, because I don't know all you guys, but I know we can do it because the Lord has given us the blueprint. He has given us the capacity to do exceedingly and abundantly. We have all these promises. If we applied that energy and that belief to this deeply uh, complicated topic but solvable thing, if we let God do that through us, we will see him not just in heaven but here on earth. That's my prayer. Thank you.